the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy December 15th, 2020. Brett Stevens opens his column in the New York Times this morning by writing, quote, A few days before Barack Obama left office, he invited a small group of conservative writers, all never Trumpers, for a conversation in the White House's Roosevelt Room. The mood was dark. The president was worried about the future of the Republican Party. We worried about the future itself. Someone mentioned the possibility of global thermonuclear war as a plausible outcome of the Trump presidency. Close quote. I'd never heard of that meeting. I'd heard of a meeting George Will hosted for Barack Obama in 2009 as he was coming into office, joined by Bill Kristol, David Brooks, and Charles Krauthammer. This other meeting that Stevens writes about in 2017, however, had a better lid on it, I guess. I'm going to guess it was the same group, minus Krauthammer and adding Stevens. But the funniest line in the opening, in that opening, is that, quote, the president, Obama, was worried about the future of the Republican Party. I'm tempted to think of Ben Braddock's line from The Graduate. That's a laugh, Mrs. Robinson. That's a real laugh. I'm sure Barack Obama has been very worried about the future of the Republican Party, just as he'd been worried about its present and past. In fact, I think it's probably true that people like Bill Kristol and Brett Stevens are far more worried about the Democratic Party than Obama is the Republican Party, likely so that some spoils from it might inure to them. But there's another point here. We read Brett Stevens when we read him for two reasons. A, he's a good writer. B, we want to know what he thinks because presumably he thinks smartly. Same with anyone we read, I presume. But when a small group is giving advice and projecting their thoughts in advising of all people, the president of the United States, even an outgoing president, you'd think they'd be at the top of their game at their best, their sharpest, trying to be right, accurate, credible, smart. And this group, again, I'm guessing it was Stevens, Crystal, Brooks, perhaps George Will as well. This group came up with the idea that Trump would launch or bring about thermonuclear war. What else did they think? According to Stevens, they predicted the stock market would never recover, would stumble into war with North Korea or Iran, the free press would be muzzled, Vladimir Putin would rule Donald Trump through blackmail, and Trump-appointed judges would dismantle the rule of law and overturn the verdict of elections. Who needs conservatives when you already had those predictions from Rachel Maddow and Paul Krugman? That's point one. Point two, each and every prediction was wrong, precisely, exactly 180 degrees wrong. The exact opposite of everything they predicted is what happened. The stock market soared beyond anyone's best expectations. North Korea and Iran were not only tamed. Two of Iran's leading warmongers were removed from the earth. The Ukraine was armed to oppose Russia and more sanctions were put on Putin and Russia than ever before. Trump's judges were from the finest wish list and dreams of every right-thinking conservative, as if it were the Reagan Justice Department and White House Counsel's Office vetting and nominating them, 
And as far as crushing the press, the press had never been more active, nor did they ever see a president who gave as much time as Trump did to the press. All of which begs a certain question. Why again do we read these people who get things not just wrong, but monumentally wrong, especially when they are supposedly at their best, advising a president or outgoing president of the United States trying to look good and smart? One other thing, Crystal, Will, Stevens, Brooks, each and every one of them is strongly pro-Israel, among the strongest supporters of Israel in America. They got that wrong, too. On the two countries they care most about, America and Israel, they didn't get things wrong. They got every single thing wrong. Every single thing. But to them, of course, Donald Trump and his supporters were out of touch. Wrong, blind, misdirected. It's kind of like Neville Chamberlain criticizing Churchill or Jimmy Carter trying to criticize Reagan. Except even Chamberlain and Carter got a few things right here and there. For four years, though, five really, these supposedly deep thinkers and public intellectuals railed at Trump and us, telling us how wrong we all were and how right they were, only to be miserable failures in everything they suggested, guessed, explained, and predicted. Of course, for them, there's never a consequence, for their words and worries don't have any dramatic real-world real world consequences or implications. They can say anything they want. They are to quote Hillary Clinton, Clinton, just words. Here's the next enterprise. It's already begun, and it will be fodder for writers for a while. Defining Trumpism and defining it down. Just as they were predicting what Trump was going in, the new project is defining what Trumpism is as he prepares to leave office. You'll see column after column here and there stating Trumpism doesn't stand for much but is rather a loose colligation of disparate ideas built around a figurehead or cult leader. Well, that's just plain wrong, too. You have a movement that spans the adherents from Newt Gingrich to Christy Noam, from Tom Cotton to Ron DeSantis, from Candace Owens to Mike Pompeo, from the Claremont Institute in Hillsdale to Franklin Graham and Mike Huckabee, religious, non-religious cops, intellectuals, high school and college dropouts, single moms, large families, blacks, whites, Jews, Hispanics and some what we think of as America. It hates communism, and is the only movement in America, really, that still talks about and teaches what communism is or cares about it. It hates crime, and it's the only movement in America that supports law and order. It hates war, and it supports the military. In the wor words of Charles Kessler, it's a movement that loves America and celebrates grateful, hard-working Americans of all colors, religions, occupations, from Minnesota policemen to Maine lobstermen. No identity politics, political correctness, or anarcho-socialism here. And no cancel culture or statue toppling either. Boy, that's something to really despise, isn't it? Well, yes, it is if you don't think America is great and worth preserving, if you don't think your own convictions are quite right, if you are hesitant or tentative about American values, and if you place personalities above principles which is exactly what each of these soy dissent conservatives did for five years, as they got everything in policy any conservative could possibly hope for and thought near out of reach. Wrong. So when we talk about legacy conservatism or conservatism, Inc., or the failures of conservatism in the past, we're talking about these kinds of folks. I don't know, as nobody can know, what the next presidential election looks like. But as you've heard me say, the bench has never been better. 
And my point about that is when we look at our pantheon, pantheon of conservative greats, it's a rather small temple from Lincoln to Coolidge, from Goldwater to Reagan. They were great, but they were anomalies. Far more common were the Bushes and Doles, for example. Think of it this way. A Bush or a Dole was on every presidential ticket from 1976 to 2004, dominating the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. That's a generation. Goldwater and Reagan, like Trump, had to battle the GOP establishment hammer and tong. Not even George Will or William Buckley were original supporters of Reagan in 1979, 1980. And now we have the opportunity to reestablish the set point. Think about it this way. How very irrelevant does Mitt Romney seem right now? And how very relevant does someone like Ron DeSantis and Christy Noams and Andy Big and Jim Jordan seem? Bill Crystal and Fox News or talk radio? Watch Mike Pompeo, too, and Richard Grinnell. We say this not because we want to win, but because we see what's at stake. Nothing short of every American norm. And it's funny. The left and never Trumpers spoke of Donald Trump's breaking of norms. The only norm he broke was the embarrassment of speaking up full-throatedly for American values. What values are those? Well, today's Bill of Rights Day. Have you heard about that on any other talk radio or anywhere else today? So let's start with the Constitution and move to the Bill of Rights. When you get there, ask yourselves a few questions. The First Amendment, freedom of speech and religion, how stand those and who's tried to protect them the most? Second Amendment, who wants to eviscerate it and who spoke up for it? A fair justice system that took no account of party, philosophy, or anything else is embodied in the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. Power of the people over the government is embodied in the Tenth Amendment. It may be at its lowest nadir in history as a result of the left and the left's enablers on the right. A foreign policy poised against terrorists and Marxist Maoists. A set of domestic policies reducing the individual to categorization based on Marxist principles, be they race or class. Our friends at Issues and Insights ask this, what is the United States of America? society of elitists versus the rest, a culture that's given up on itself, a land of censorship, a nation in which policies and orientation are not merely matters of disagreement but causes of internal and irreconcilable turmoil, was supposed to be none of these. But today it seems a foreign place, with more in common with the many dystopias of literature than anything the founders of a free nation ever imagined. We can give into it, yield to it, we can do what we do best. Show we are Americans after all. And for that one reason and one reason only, because America matters. And we shan't be ashamed to say that any more than we should be to think it. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. As you know, through the years, I've had the privilege of knowing some great and amazing people. One of them is and was Herman Cain. Unfortunately, we lost him this fall. He was the former CEO of Godfather's Pizza. He battled and uh, 
beat cancer. He ran for president in 2012. He was a talk radio host in Atlanta for many years. Herman was an amazing man whose life embodied the values we strive to live and pass along to our kids and grandkids, belief in God, the power of personal responsibility, hard work, a good education, living each day with a thankful heart. Poor to CEO is one of the most inspirational, entertaining films I've ever watched, and you can watch it right now at SalemNow.com. That's SalemNow.com. Make sure to use the, the uh, promo code PHOENIX and save 20%. Watch Poor to CEO, the Herman Cain story, at SalemNow.com. Um, as I mentioned in my, uh, in my um, monologue, Today is uh, indeed Bill of Rights Day. I don't know how much talk there is of it. I'm hoping to hear from Tina of Star Valley. She likes to talk about a Bill of Rights attitude that we should have in this country. Um, as conservatives, as really all Americans, a Bill of Rights attitude. Uh, it probably didn't make any news that you saw, but indeed... Um, President Trump did issue a proclamation on it. He wrote, nearly 250 years ago, heroes of our revolution signed the Declaration of Independence, offering a bold enumeration of inalienable rights endowed to us by our creator. In time, with independence secured from a tyrannical monarchy, our nation etched these principles of liberty and equality into the law of our fledgling nation when we ratified our Constitution. The revolutionary idea they embodied that certain individual rights are beyond the reach of government has resonated around the world. Today we celebrate our sacred rights, an example they have set for the rest of history. James Madison, who drafted the Bill of Rights text, was initially skeptical of the need to secure specific rights explicitly in the Constitution, believing the checks and balances inherent in our system of government would operate to achieve that objective. But he came to recognize the value that the Bill of Rights could provide and worked to ensure that the individual rights and freedoms of Americans were precisely enumerated in the highest law of the land. Madison was acutely aware that while a government formed to serve its people is just and legitimate, power lodged as it must in human hands will ever be liable to abuse, as he wrote. Accordingly, he worked to imprint essential human rights, including the rights to peaceful assembly, freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, in our foundational legal text, empowering generations of Americans by protecting them from government abuses. Now, one of the interesting things I have to note about Donald Trump's proclamation is he does it right. He calls it um, freedom of speech in the First Amendment. Uh, would that the rest of government maintained that notion of the First Amendment, including too often the Supreme Court, which doesn't much longer speak of freedom of speech, but freedom of expression, which is not a word the founders used. They said speech, they said press, they said assembly. They were pretty skilled with the English language, our founders were, Madison particularly. If they wanted to cover everything, they could have, but they didn't. They could have used the word expression, they didn't. They used the word speech, they used the word religion, they used the word press. And by doing so, that meant something. Speech meant something. 
When the Supreme Court converted speech to expression, that meant something, too. That meant a departure, a departure from the First Amendment. Now we could cover, to put it no worse, exotic dancing. Now we could embrace flag burning. Now we could embrace all manner of expletive and cover that under the First Amendment. It's just expression, after all. By the way, expression is an interesting word itself. It means to force out. It has nothing to do with what speech really is. Speech is something that, I guess in its best of forms, enables contemplation, conversation, cogitation. Expression, none of that. So, for example, in the famous case, was it Miller v. California, where the protester at the courthouse had a jacket with the words, with the embroidery F the draft, except it was filled in. I I mean, it it wasn't filled in, just said F the draft. That was found to be um, freedom of expression. Now, the interesting thing about that is the Supreme Court, when they said that that was protected by the First Amendment, they gave a tell. They gave a tell that they perhaps aren't as, um, what's the word I want here? Um, they they aren't as gullible as they want us to think, for they know F the draft has a certain meaning, doesn't it? It doesn't have an implication to do with the weather or perhaps the windows not being closed all the way. We know exactly what those words mean, don't we, F the draft? We know what the message is that's trying to be imparted. So, too, should we know what speech is when that's what was put in the founding document of the First Amendment. And so, too, should we know what it was meant for. The Constitution tells us a Republican form of government. The founders were not neutral on what kind of government we should have. They guaranteed to the states in the Constitution a Republican form of government, which always made it curious to me as to why federal and the Supreme Court could guarantee the rights of shall we say, expression to Nazis and communists. It's a controversial point of view. It has a few adherents. I'm one of them. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If it's 34 past, it's time for our culture and economy update with John Dabrowski. He of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. How are you, John? Very good. How you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing Excellent. fine. What's kind of interesting um, is in the economy, more and more stories, articles about overvaluing and bubbles, stock mm. overvalues and bubbles. Right. What am I reading about? What am I? What are they trying to tell me? Well, I mean, I think you've you've seen in the past uh, there have been a number of uh, times throughout our history where we see the markets uh, rise dramatically and rapidly, and then all of a sudden there's a pullback. Uh, sometimes I find when uh, people are out there, they're uh, like with the DoorDash IPO or with uh, Airbnb's IPOs, if you look at the prices right now, they have fallen pretty sharply from their highs. 
which, again, leads you to believe there's a little bit of euphoria there when some of these stocks are coming out public. People want to get a piece of them, and they're just buying them because they think they're going to continue to go up. Now, history might show that over time they can go up, but you don't necessarily need to jump in at the first day of trading on some of these stocks. You'll have an opportunity in most cases to get them. Um, But, Seth, when you think about how far we've come with the markets, um, I can understand how some people out there might say, hey, the markets have risen so much that they're due to have a pullback. But that sometimes is a little bit of a a reason for people to uh, be afraid and not invest. And the reason is is because they're thinking short term. And I know you and I have talked many times about investing in the market should be a long-term investment and you should – Buy companies or buy stocks that you're that you understand, you're comfortable with, and you're looking at them for the long term because anything can happen in the short term. Look what happened with COVID nineteen. No one could have predicted that, uh, but look where we are today. Since that back in uh, what was it January February, uh, we've seen such a nice recovery. So if you were thinking short term, you would have been f- fearful of that. You probably never got back into this market, and you never got an opportunity to take advantage of the sharp rise we saw. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Gotcha. Now, what is it I'm also reading about? You make you make complicated things uh, comprehensible. That's good, John. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what is it I'm reading about when I read that the Fed could disappoint markets tomorrow, even if it keeps their what, what's called a dovish tone? Yeah, I... I I've I never think, heard that before. I yeah, know it in, in foreign policy. I don't know it in economic policy. I think that... Um, People are just looking for something to talk about, it seems like. (laughs) Um, The Fed has come out numerous times basically stating their policy that they're not going to be changing rates. They're going to be keeping rates low for the foreseeable future. Uh, I've I've heard someone talking uh, yesterday and another today that they felt the 10-year Treasury may be as high as 1.5%. That would be a dramatic increase uh, now, by mid-year of 2021, uh, it, that would be a dramatic increase in rates, which the Fed has basically said they're not going to be raising rates. Maybe they're changing their tune. I guess that's what we're going to find out uh, when Fed Chair Powell speaks. But I, I think you're going to hear more of the same at the moment, especially because we haven't seen any uh, COVID-19 additional relief package and I think uh, some are really fearful that businesses are going to, again, continue to fail, and we're not going to get that relief there in time. Hopefully, uh, we saw Mitch McConnell and uh, Nancy Pelosi, I guess, meeting today. Maybe they're going to try to strike a deal. Hopefully, they can. Yeah. Some kind of uh, small business thing. Is that is that what most people are I, I believe so. Yeah. Businesses, as well as I know Bernie Sanders has really been pushing for $1,200 um, individual payment. Right. Um, but again, as, as we said, $1,200 really isn't uh, enough. And, you know, and I heard something that was on Rush Limbaugh today, interestingly enough, yeah. uh, an analogy basically that there's something called eminent domain. Yes, sure. When the, com- yes. when the country comes yes. in and a city comes in and, and shuts, you know, takes your land, yes, but they sure. pay you for it. Yeah. Uh, but here they're you know, shutting businesses down, telling you you can't make a living, but they're not compensated for it. And it's it, that was a great analogy. I mean, I, I, I must say whoever came up with that is perfect. Yeah. Uh, so something to think about. All right, brother. Well, thank you for that, uh, what would you call it, roundabout. You I bet. appreciate it. Tour, tour. <laughs>
Again, go to GrandCanyonPlanning.com, schedule an appointment, happy to sit down and talk with you to see what you're doing to plan for your financial future. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipic and an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. You're great, John Dombrowski. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you very talk much. Talk tomorrow. Bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Oh, my gosh, this looks like a good series of calls here. 602-508-0960. Alan in Phoenix. How are you, Alan? I'm fine, Seth. How are you, my man? Merry Christmas. You too. I haven't heard from you in a while. All been well? Uh, yeah, it has. I, I, um, due to my last indiscretion, I put myself on uh, self-imposed uh, exile for a while. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Just so you know, it wasn't. It was self-imposed, not outwardly. Yeah, it was self-imposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, not outwardly forced. Um, is that is um, self-imposed like extremely full? If it's imposed, someone else can impose yeah. something on you. Okay, all right. Okay, okay. Always learning. But uh, it, you know, with with today being Bill of Rights Day, um, the original set that went out, um, I believe, included thirteen, of which we ended up with ten. Two ended up uh, becoming laws later on, becoming amendments later on. And the original article of the first, which is still the only uh, amendment to the Constitution, which is still available to be uh, ratified, is the one that sets the, um, the ratio for representatives and constituents. Um, and it's one that the Congress then kind of tried to nullify with the Permanent Apportionment Act of 1929 hmm. by setting the House at 435. Hmm. Uh, in uh, in essence, you know, we started out with thirty five thousand constituents per representative, and now we're over seven hundred and twenty some thousand. So it's not really the people's house anymore. It's 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 been federalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, after nineteen hundred, when I we went to four thirty five, uh, they 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 started you know and after the census of ten, and they had some squabbling. Now we have. You know, we have communications issues in this because we're starting to write more stuff. So we like our 435, so we won't reapportion. Uh, and then 20, they liked it so much because they had more power. And before 30, they decided, now nah, we're not going to, you know, we're going to stay at 435. So they've really taken away the right of the people. Uh, we really need to repeal the... Uh, this was this was based on the population back then, too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When when we when 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 they were doing it at their ratio number, they got us to four thirty five, and then once they got to four thirty five, they decided that the, you know they liked the power that that produced. Okay. East and man, sort of, and and they didn't, and then they just stopped growing, which was the wrong thing to do because every ten years when there was growth, there was always more people added. See what the census is, census. You reapportion, right? And then you redistribute, right? But we right. We don't reapportion anymore, right? Right. We, we just redistribute, right? We just slice the district, right? So we, right. We so it's always going to be the same number, and in its own way, doesn't right. quite make the same amount of sense, really. Right. So, and by doing that, what happens is every time it was reapportioned, people came in, and then people left because uh, they didn't want to deal with the new people. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Right. 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 So there was a natural exodus and entrance of, of the people right i mean the the, the the silliness of all that is i live in a district i you know it's the same address 
that was right. once represented by John Shattig, but due to redistricting, is now represented by Greg Stanton. That's a pretty far That's fall. Correct. Right. Okay. Just to put right. some meat on the bones of what you're talking about. I didn't move. Right. They moved. Right. No, and actually, absolutely. And what happens is by doing that, the people aren't represented. Anymore. Right. And the natural biodiversity of the Congress itself is not represented. Because if we went back to, say, even 75,000 per, would have a lot more um, areas where people... Sure, sure. Pick the ethnic group sure, sure. would then be represented. Right. You wouldn't have to force these districts. It would all be it would be more organic. Right. And yeah, would would twelve or fifteen hundred people in the house be a little bit of a challenge? Yes, so what? But guess what? Then it would be harder to get two hundred and eighteen. More of a people's house at that to, point too. Right. Yeah. It's more yeah. of a people's house. So the sure. so the legislation would be better. No, I take the point, yeah. 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 And then combined with the seventeenth amendment, which federalized uh, the state senators, federal senators, from being uh, taken out of the state house or voted in by the state right, house. Right, right, with the people. Mm-hmm. They basically federalized the whole federal government mm-hmm. against the people. I see what you're saying. States' rights away. See, there's no more states' rights because the senators were the states' representatives. Mm-hmm. And there's no more people's rights because the people aren't represented. Yeah. When you have states that have two senators and one representative, the people aren't represented in that state. That's correct. That's correct, or at least that's it's somewhat up, upside down, awkward, or weird. Yeah, like in Wyoming yeah, and, or something. And, and yeah, why, and, and that's why so much money can go into house races because they know they don't have they don't have to care what the people say. Once they're elected, they don't care because they got enough votes out of their small constituents. I mean, if you look at out of seven hundred and thirty-five thousand people in each district, how many people actually vote? Yeah, that's no, very, uh, very like a hundred, maybe a hundred thousand, maybe, maybe, yeah, it's, it's, or a hundred and fifty, right. so, hundred and sixty, something like that. Yeah, it depends. If you yeah. can get three hundred, even if you get three hundred thousand, yeah. you're not, you're not getting, you're not getting half, even, of, right? Yeah, because the people know that it doesn't matter. And if well, there's some of that. There's some complacency. I think. I mean, I think we've seen polls. You and I have seen polls. Most people don't even know who their member of Congress is much less their state. But you know what also is true? Sadly, I think they may – I'd be – I could be wrong on this, but I think I'm right. I bet more people know who their member of Congress is than their state representative or state senator. Yeah. Which kind of goes against, in a weird, ironic way, kind of is upside down given what you're saying. We should be closer to our state, uh, to, to, to our state representatives and our state legislators, right? It's it's a weird thing. There's There's a tremendous – complacency and ignorance well and that comes from the media too where the where the, the papers aren't you know putting this out and now that nobody gets the paper anymore it, it would be even harder but it, it's sad that, and but fortunately this amendment it only it, it didn't pass by one state back in the day so it would only i don't I'm, I'm my constitutional law is a little light on this whether it would still take only one state because of its original output if one state could bring this up and and, and then have it ratified or if it would take, I believe, yeah, that's that's more yeah, that's a way to think about it. The other way to think about it, I, this, yes, that's one way to think about it. In addition to that, I always think of my friend Debbie, who, whenever she gives a talk at a political gathering, you know, it's often, you know, it's often people. I don't know, half the room or more, maybe they don't vote, or maybe they don't get involved, or maybe they don't get involved in a primary, but only the general. And you know, she likes to say, for those of you that. Choose not to get involved in primaries or generals. Um, how's that working out for you? 
Truly, how's it working out for you? And so you probably have the same amount of patience I do for people, Alan, who complain but don't vote or don't get involved. I, 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 I you know, we have to be patient, obviously, and we want to get them involved. But, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's pretty tragic when you look at the levels of involvement in, in what is either a representative democracy or something that really requires what Reagan used to just call citizenship. Citizenship, his favorite word. Alan, thanks for that that tour. That was good. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Bob's and Payson. Hello, Bob. Hello, Seth. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I just I've been. Look, thinking about this for a long time now, I'm 74 years old, former military veteran of Vietnam, and we are in World War III with China, and I don't think most Americans, including our politicians, have recognized that yet. You know, it all started, in my opinion, World War II, China, as you know, were somewhat allies of us that helped the top, accomplish the Doolittle Raid where they had a place to go after they bombed Japan. In 1949, when the war ended, Mao was still in charge of the... Oh, country. yeah, no, no, I know, I know the history, uh, Bob. Uh, talk to me about how you see us fighting World War Three or Four. Okay, it's going to start right after, if Biden is elected, Biden is not going to be president for a year, and Kamala Harris, or Kami Harris, as they call her, is going to take over, and the Chinese don't like strength. They go against weakness. They've been trying to take back Taiwan when Chiang Kai-shek evacuated Taiwan in 1949, okay? And they've said they're going to take it back. And when they get a weak resistance, not Trump, when they get weak resistance, they're going to attack Taiwan. And we may or may not be dragged into a war with China in the South China Sea. Yeah, this is uh, look. There's there's a lot of problems with with that we have with China. Uh, Brandon Weikert spent a long time on it with us yesterday, talking about the kinds of force we are likely to see, uh, and the kinds of engagement we are likely to see with China. The first thing I would recommend is um, reading Brian Kennedy's piece uh, in Imprimus in Hillsdale, facing up to the China threat. It was his September Hillsdale Monthly. If you don't get the Hillsdale Imprimus in your mail, which is free, you can get it online free, too, imprimus.hillsdale.edu. Um, I interviewed him for about an hour on it as well here, So, and all our archives of those shows are available. So I would say listen, listen to and, and, and watch what uh, Brian Kennedy is saying. Check out his website, uh, 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 committee – what is it? Committee for – Thank you. Committee on the Present Danger China. Committee on the Present Danger China. Bill, you have a lockjaw memory. Just when I was going to make fun of you today, too. In the next hour, every hour is different. You have to prove yourself every hour. Yeah, right. Committee on the Present Danger China. Yes, I've been talking about China longer than most. I agree that um, we're in the soup unless we recognize it. I'm Seth Leibson, 602 We'll be right back.